All right. I have so many pieces of paper up here that I probably won't even look at, so I, was, I don't even know why I printed them all out. But it makes me look more spiritual when I come up here and like throw down a book, right? <laughs> I'm like, you guys are about to get it. All right. So Luke chapter 15, that's where I'm going to be at this morning, Luke chapter number 15. And I'm sure you guys have heard uh, many a sermon out of this particular portion of Scripture, uh, I'm sure through, by, by way of Justin and by way of Mark when he was here. Uh, so hopefully, uh, I don't think any portion of Scripture can become trite. Um, I, with that being said, hopefully the Lord can show us something out of something fresh, if not new, not new in the sense that it was like hidden and nobody else got to it, but new to us, new to you and I. Uh, so Luke chapter number 15, and if you're familiar with this chapter, uh, you'll know that oftentimes it's kind of nicknamed the lost chapter in the sense that Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep at the beginning of it, uh, and then right in the center section there he tells the story of the lost coin, and then at the end, which is the biggest section that most of us are familiar with, is the story of what they call the lost son or the prodigal son, uh, which unfortunately I think this particular, I believe it's a story of, of what's going on here with the prodigal. It's labeled a parable in my Bible. I personally don't think it is. Now, that's just what I think. Uh, and of course, um, I'm subject to be wrong. I know that's hard to believe, but yes, I can be wrong at times. Uh, but I think it's an actual, kind of like the rich man and Lazarus when Jesus told that story. I don't believe that was a parable. I believe Jesus was actually talking about people that existed. And I believe that's what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is talking about an actual event that he was aware of. And unfortunately, it gets named the, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son or whatever the case may be. Uh, and if any of you guys are familiar with Tim Keller, he pastors a church up in, um, I think it's in Manhattan. Uh, he wrote a book on this chapter entitled The, the Prodigal God, uh, what I thought was very interesting. Uh, because of the fact he points out that this father, who was a Jewish man, responds in a way that isn't very socially acceptable uh, to the attitude of both the attitude and actions of both of his sons, um, he wasn't the typical father that uh, these first century, or whatever part of the time they lived in. I remember watch out throwing out dates like that. Some of you might Google it. Back in Jesus's day, uh, the Jewish fathers were accustomed to. Uh, who's ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? You ever seen that? that man, is that not that? That is, in my mind, the musical. The sorry sound of music. Sorry, cats. Le Miserable is pretty good, though. We'll have to have them battle it out and see which one comes out number one. Anyways, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Rev Tevia, who's my personal hero by way of beard, he, uh, you know, he has his daughters there, and one of the daughters falls in love with the, the Russian son, and they secretly get married. And you remember that one scene where Rev Tevia is pushing the cart down the dirt road, and the daughter runs up and just starts calling him Papa, Papa, Papa. And he basically says, you know, hey, you're dead to me, you know, because you've married outside of the faith. Um, and I know that may see, seem extreme, uh, but in certain cultural situations, when, a, when a, a son or a daughter made a certain choice, they literally became dead to that family. Uh, now, me personally, you're dead to me if you dip your ranch, you dip your pizza in ranch dressing. You're dead to me. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, my standards are a lot higher than these guys's, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so we see here the reason why this story caught the, the Jews off guard. And uh, we as Gentiles and Westerners in particular look at it a lot differently, you know, because we're not quite as entrenched with family traditions, so to speak, and not to quote Hank Williams too much, but uh, we're not as entrenched with family tradition as much as these guys are, you know. There was expectation that had to be fulfilled. There was a way things went. You didn't deviate from the cultural norm. Uh, the inheritance was divvied out this way, and this person got it first, and this person was in line behind that. It was all very rigid. Uh, it was socially rigid as well as religiously rigid. And we see the father in this story acting in a very non-rigid way. Uh, the average Jewish male that, would, that was a father that would have read this story would have been like, what was he thinking, you know? Um, and you've heard the story. I don't want to read it all. I'm going to read some of it, um, but we're going to go through all of it, um, hopefully. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens, but I really do want to get through it. So if I start like start off like a bullet, just hang on there. Hopefully we'll get to everything because I don't want to miss the, the high spots. Uh, Luke 15, verse 11. 
Jesus said there was a certain man that had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And I like this phrase. And the King James phrases it differently. I'm reading the New King James. But he uses this little phrase here. He says, so he divided to them his livelihood. I liked that. I like that. Because really what we're talking about here is not the father giving away stuff. That's an important thing to mark in our minds. Because a lot of times we see this as a younger son wasting money. But that's not what's going on here. What we have here is we have a father, a man, whose entire existence has wrapped around being a father to these two boys. That was, that was who he was. That was his identity. And it's proper and it's right that that be his identity. And he's giving them a piece of himself. He's not just giving them, here's the keys to the car, you know, here's $25,000, I got you set up in a trust fund. That's not what's going on here. The reason why the, it's translated livelihood is because uh, what Luke is trying to get us to understand here is that the father's giving away a portion of himself to these, guys, these men. That he's worked for one reason, so that they could have something that they did not earn. He's giving them something he earned. He's giving away his livelihood. He goes on um, in verse number 13. So he divided, and it's interesting, he divided it to both of them. They both got their share. Verse number 13, it says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed into a far country, and there wasted his possessions. And notice now it's his possessions. It's not the father's possessions anymore. That's a very important distinction we're going to kind of look at here in just a minute. A little deeper. The wasted his possessions with prodigal. The King James Version says riotous living. Sounds a lot scarier that way, right? Riotous living, you know? A lot of dust kicked up in a riot. Verse 14, he says, But when he had spent all, there arose a famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he, uh, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods or the husks that the swine ate, excuse me. And no one gave him anything. What a phrase, right? Verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Is that okay? I'm just going to do it. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring your best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatty calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's now found. And they began to make merry. Verse number 25 tells us for sure that none of these people were Baptist. It says, now his older son was in the field and he came near the house and he heard music and dancing. That's how we know. That's how we know. Don't you dare tap your foot to blessed assurance, people, all right? You know, anyways, that's enough. I can make fun of Baptists without malicious, without being malicious, because I used to be one, all right? So I can do that. Verse 26, so he called one of the servants and said, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother is coming because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I, now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll come back in a minute. I never transgressed your command at any time, and yet never gave, you never gave me a young goat that I might mar make merry with my friends. And boy, when I was a young man, that's what I wanted. You know, just a goat and goat barbecue. That's what I was looking for. Number 30, but as soon as this son of yours, and I, that, that, can you just hear the contempt in his voice? This son of yours, not my brother, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I've got to calm down because this is some interesting things here. And it says, this son of yours who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we have made merry and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and he was found. 
Uh, I lived in uh, North Carolina for about five years-ish, I guess. And I lived in this little, and you've never heard, if you have heard of it, I would be shocked, all right? So you guys may have, because y'all have been up to North Carolina so many times, so we'll see. Here's your test. I lived in a little uh, town called Polkville. I knew it. (laughs) Still batting a thousand. And a little town called Polkville is just north of Shelby, where uh, Russell Skaggs is from. Is that who that guy was? I don't know who it is. Who? Ricky Skaggs, that's him. Yeah, that's where he's from. Sorry. One of them Skaggs. <laughs> so he was from there. So Polkville was just north of there and just north of Polkville. And I mean, Polkville was a poke and plum town. You know, you poke your head around the corner and you're plumb out of town. And I mean, it was just very small. I remember when I moved to town, there was a guy literally moving furniture down Main Street on a full size trailer hooked to the back of a lawnmower. All right. <laughs> And they had a sign on the corner at the gas station that said, Best Biscuits in Town. I'm like, this is the only place in town that sells biscuits. <laughs> so anyways, north of that town was a town called Lawndale. Well, all right, didn't think so. <laughs> and there's this lady that lived here. She was truly a hippie, stuck in the hippie ways, very um, hippie-ish in all manners, all right? They lived in this little trailer. Uh, her and her husband did cons- her husband did construction, but she worked like had like a greenhouse, like a little nursery, very loosely a nursery. All right, this was you know I I, I wish you could just see this place, but this anyway. I answered an ad in the newspaper, and she was going to pay me I think seven dollars an hour cash just to come out there and do the stuff that she couldn't do. Uh, like she didn't believe in tilling the land with machinery, so I hand tilled her garden. All right, yeah, right. Um, she didn't believe in wasting anything, so they lived off the land. I went out there, had this refrigerator out from under the tree one day, went out there and opened the refrigerator, no lie. She's like, there's, there's water in the fridge and in the freezer. I got there, open it up, there's water, water, a bunch of dead squirrels, all right? So this, <laughs> that's no lie, just frozen next to the water. Um, I used to have to, she had a mushroom garden, not sure if it was legal, but uh, <laughs> I had to compost that thing. I used to have to hand cut sod for some reason because she didn't want to do it with a machine. I'm not real sure. She was an odd lady. Chickens in her house. I could tell you some other stories that are tragic, but uh, we were out in the greenhouse one day, and I'm watering these plants. They were legal plants, and we were watering the plants, and for some reason, she just started, you know, I was in Bible college, so she began to talk to me about, you know, religious things. And she began just out of nowhere, and I'm sure you guys have probably had stuff like this happen to you here or there before. Uh, she just began to unload on me about her dad, just out of nowhere. And I mean, it wasn't like my dad was a meanie. It wasn't anything like that. I mean, it was like stuff I was like, oh my gosh, why is this lady telling me this? You know, I was probably 22 years old. I, I, don't, I didn't know myself, much less what was going on with her, you know what I mean? And she's lo- unloading on me about all this emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. She's just coming at me with all this stuff. I didn't even know. I had no clue what to say. I mean, sometimes, believe it or not, it's just best not to say anything. Fortunately, I was just too stupid to know what to say, so I didn't say anything, really. Just listen, listen for like 20 or 30 minutes, just story after story after story about all these things that have happened to her. And at the end, she said, well, what do you think? And she was saying all this, and, well, if all this happened, you know, why would God let these things happen? We've been in that scenario before with different people, even with ourselves. And um, when she got through, she goes, what? And then, like, she had just pinned me down or something, um, you know, philosophically. And she's like, well, what do you think about that? I'm like, I really didn't know at the time, to be honest with you. I just said, well, the only thing I know to tell you is that God's not your father. That's it. She just, she looked like she got mad for a second, like visibly angry, and then she just started crying and said, I don't want to talk about this anymore, and ran off, and I didn't see her for like two days. You know, I just came to work and worked, and, you know, she paid me, and that was the end of it. You know, the unfortunate thing is, is this, is to an extent, and let's not be so self-righteous at times to think that we still don't project on God some things about a father that are negative or at the very minimum earthly and earthy. We tend to do it. I tend to do it. All right? It happens. That's not to say that I had a bad father. I didn't. My dad was not a bad guy. Your father may not have been bad either, but your earthly father is also not God. You know? 
And when we get into this story, we're not looking at a story necessarily about two young men. We're looking at a story or an instance that Jesus is using to try to illustrate to us something about what the father's really like, something that is very typical for you and I to misunderstand. And it's illustrated in both of these young men. Um, there is that these... Both of these young men are looking for something. They're looking for meaning. And notice, remember we talked about at the beginning that life is, that this story is about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin. When something's lost, it may have its place, but it's not in its proper place. It may have a value, but it's somewhere where its value is not being exposed. It's not being uh, demonstrated for what it is. It's like your TV remote, all right? When that thing slips between the, cu the cushions on the couch down there with the Cheetos and the other 87 cents that fell out of your pocket, all right, just because it's in the couch and you can't find it doesn't mean that it doesn't operate the TV anymore. Matter of fact, your panic proves it. Just lose that Netflix remote, all right? You will know true panic when you can't hit, am I still watching? Yes, all right? You'll know what it's like. Just because something's lost doesn't mean it still doesn't hold a value. It does not mean that it still doesn't have a function. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a purpose, and it doesn't mean that it, that thing doesn't have meaning. All that's true. But the fact that it's lost negates all of those things that it was designed for. Okay? And what, what Jesus is trying to show us here is this, is that the Father is the one that gives this grossly sinning son his meaning, and the father is also the one that gives this religious, self-righteous young man his meaning. Both of them went searching for their own personal meaning in two separate ways. One of them would get him, you know, kicked out of every public place. It would give him a very uh, a mark socially in a negative sense. The other one would have probably given him a lot of points positively in a social sense. People would have looked at him and said he was a good guy. People would have probably just tossed him the keys to the car and said, sure, if you need to use the car, go right ahead. But the fact still remains <clears throat> that being bad did not bring meaning and purpose to the one boy any more than being good brought meaning and purpose to the other. What we see here is how the father is the one that assigns the worth and the meaning. And so I want to try in the best way possible uh, with my limited breakfast intake this morning and over-caffeinated brain uh, to kind of go through this. When we're... Um, let me think how do I want to word this. When we're not living with, our, with, the, with true meaning, with true purpose and true identity, um, we're going to do a lot of things that we're not proud of later on in order to find it. Uh, we're going to do things that at the time seem like they're the right thing to do as well. You know, I've often said ignorance and error often carry the same consequences. You know, we can make choices in ignorance and we can make them an out-and-out -out rebellion and still have to deal with the same fallout from them. I know, you know, right? Missing our identity will lead to missing our meaning. When we're not operating in identity, we're not going to live a life of meaning. And that's what places a lot of people in a state, in a spiritual, mental, and emotional uproar at times. Just seeing things as meaningless and pointless. I mean, there's whole branches of science that find their basis. And evolutionary science, basically the conclusion we come from is that life really doesn't have meaning. You live, you procreate, you try to do the best, you make things good, then you die and it's over. There's no real meaning behind it. And so let's get into this. I, I don't want to monologue too much about that in the introductory. In verse number 12 down through verse number uh, 13, uh, we see how the fathers provided for these two young men. He gave them his livelihood. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with history, you know that uh, particular in Jewish culture that the father divided the inheritance at one point in his life, and that was right before he died. Uh, he didn't do it you know, at the age of 65 when he retired and he got the discount coffee at Hardee's. That's not when he did it or whatever the case may be. Please tell me you can still retire when you're 65. Is that a thing? Or do you have to keep working past that? Oh, gosh. I only have 40 more years to work then, right? <laughs> Unless I can find somebody that's going to be a millionaire one day. Let me know if you know anybody. 
Anyways, I better keep going. And so uh, the father divides up his livelihood here. The very thing, the very essence of who he is, all the work, everything that he had been doing up to this point, he was doing for the sons. This one son swoops in and he just decides that he's not going to wait till dad fills out the AARP uh, form and is on the deathbed. He wants what's coming to him and he wants it now. Basically, he's saying he has no regard for the life of his father at this point. It's very, when we look at the first son, we get it very clearly, don't we? It really doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. We see a young man that's selfish, that wants what he feels like is his. He's entitled. He goes to the father without any regard of who the father is to him and says, I want what you've worked for your whole life, and I want it now. So, in fairness, and... uh, the father divides things between the son that demanded it and the son that did not demand it. And they get what's coming to them. In verse number 13, it tells us that not many days after, the younger son packed up his knapsack, loaded up the Ford F-150, and he hit the, the dirt road going for that far country. I don't know what it is. I don't know, we don't know where he went. I'm glad we didn't. We don't know, too. This would be one of those situations where we'd go visit it or something and try to figure out what he did and repeat it or something. So there's certain it's like there's just certain things I'm glad God doesn't tell us. We would and do something weird if we knew exactly where it was at, you know. So it's better to be kind of ambiguous and not know. You know what I found so interesting about this is that you don't see the father putting up a fight here. You don't see it recorded here, you know, the 45-minute the dad lecture, all right? Now, if you were a dad, you were a master at the dad lecture, all right? I'm really still kind of new at it. You know, I'm, 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 it's, my, my lectures are having to change now, you know, because I have a 19-year-old and my other daughter's 14 and one's 11. So I'm, I'm lecturing about different things now, you know, and I, I catch myself, especially my oldest daughter, you know, I'm like, just just work, just get a job. If you graduate for the love of everything that's good and right, get a degree in something you can make money in. Don't do this. Don't let this person do that to you. You're, I know. And she's like, all right. I can just see it in her eyes. She's like, all right, okay. So you know, you've got you've got daughters. You know what this is like, yeah. <laughs> and if you any of you that have daughters, you know what it's like. So the the father doesn't put up a fight. He gives it out. The son he takes off. He does his thing. And in verse number 14, it says that he goes down to this place. It says, when he had spent all. Now, let's just, let's just keep this in mind. I think sometimes we think to ourselves, he was like, give me the money. He ran down there. He put it all on 11, you know, and rolled snake eyes. That's not how this worked, you know. There's a time frame here that we're not aware of. But nonetheless, there is a time frame. It's not like he showed up in the, the far country and boom, he was immediately broke. That's not the way that it works. Uh, we can to an extent, assume that the father uh, was, not, was not a poor man. He had an inheritance to give to these guys. So he obviously had been taking care of business, laying things back, uh, being frugal, uh, doing what Proverbs says, the righteous man lays up for his son's son. He was taking care of those things. And so he gets down here and for an, an undisclosed amount of time, he does what he wants to do thinking that this mode of spending and going is where real freedom comes. And if we've breathed air enough and taken enough steps on planet Earth, we know this, that there's just as much bondage in licentiousness as there is being bound up in legalism. I saw this a lot when I uh, pastored a church in Utah. Uh, because, you know, the believers, the, the, the people there, they were coming out of a very re- legalistic religion. That doesn't mean the people that were in Mormonism were, you know, these malicious, evil people. Uh, it was the system that they were trapped under that was malicious and evil. And they would, they'd come out of Mormonism, and they'd be like, now in Mormonism, you're not supposed to drink caffeine, uh, you're not supposed to drink tea. Uh, the Sabbath is on Sunday. That's a whole different story, so you don't really do much going on Sunday. You can't drink alcohol. Um, you're not supposed to go watch certain movies. Uh, you have family devotions every Monday night. Uh, you go to priesthood meeting on Tuesdays. Wednesday nights you have Boy Scouts for some reason. Thursday there's something. I mean, every day of the week they just keep them going. Just boom, just just wired. Matter of fact, uh, Salt Lake County, where Salt Lake City is located, everyone jokingly refers to as Happy Valley because there are so many people stressed out 
in that area that it has the largest per capita use of mood-altering drugs in America. Conversely, it is also the most religious county in America. And so there's this, this repressive religion that's just stressing. And so when they finally break free, boy, some of them, they just, they just go where the wind blows. You know, they really come out, and some of them are truly born again, and they, they trust Christ, and they, they don't throw away religion, but what, they don't throw away Christ. Well, what they do is they throw away their religion, thinking to themselves that in this lasciviousness, I'm going to find the freedom that I've always felt like I needed. But it's really not freedom, is it? You know, in the South, we blame grace for that. Yeah. You know what I blame for it? I blame religion for it. I don't blame grace for it. I blame sin for it. I don't blame... Why, why tag grace for that? I mean, the Father acted graciously here, did he not? When you see a father just give away part of his life to something, do you see the father saying, hey, here's all the money, just go run amok? That's not what I see. I see a father loving his son. I see a father showing his son, this is my life and I'm willing to give it to you. You have the choice to do whatever you want to with it, but I'm going to give it to you. The son runs off and he does what he wants to do. I heard a story when it comes to this idea of you know, Christ giving us his grace and us operating in grace. And this is not true. This is not a story that I made up or an illustration. Uh, the guy by the name of Dan, not Dan George, uh, not George Michael either. His last name was George something. But <laughs> he, he, wrote a, he wrote a book called Classic Christianity. Go ahead and write that down. You should get that book. It's a great book. <clears throat> and he gives an illustration in there when it comes to this idea of how how God provides freely to you and I without strings. And he gives the story of this king that had a kingdom, and in his kingdom, he had a horrible, there was a horrible epidemic of prostitution within the kingdom. And so the king, you know, punished it by law. If you're caught doing this, you go to jail, but it didn't stop. And so finally what he decided what he was going to do is he was just going to go ahead and just make it legal, you know, and just whatever, there's no punishment for it. Ironically enough, it still did not stop. So finally, the king decided that he was going to have to take drastic measures in order to stop this, in order to curb the, the damage that was being done. So he made an official decree, and he said, every woman that is involved in this activity that finds himself, this is the way that they're making their living in that kingdom, he invited every one of those women to his, his, uh, his estate, to his castle. He adopted them all as his children, and provided from their every need since then. And in the story, we, we learned that obviously the epidemic it waned. Because you see, it's not a matter of legislating a behavior. It's not a matter of okaying a behavior. It's a matter of reestablishing a person's identity in order to curb the behavior or to stop the behavior. You see, what this son didn't realize is this, is he didn't have to do any of the things that he did in order to have everything that his father wanted him to have. They were already his. We find out that by the, uh, at the end of the story when he's talking to the older son and the mentality of the older son. Now, let's read through this real quick. I don't want to spend a ton of time, the time that we got left, I don't want to spend a ton of time dissecting everything that the younger son did. Uh, but he talks about here, down in verse number 14, he had, uh, when he had spent all, there arose a famine in the land, and he began to be in want. I remember the first time I read this phrase, it dawned on me that more than likely, this is the first time that this guy had ever known what it was like to live his life without. This is the first time. He had been taken care of to that point constantly by his father, and rightfully so. So this guy decides he's going to strike out on his own. He is going to go and try to get his needs met by the flesh. And that's a term you read a lot in the New Testament. The most easy definition of it I know is this, is trying to get your legitimate needs met in an illegitimate way. And that can mean it can look like anything. We have legitimate needs, legitimate, uh, uh, legitimate things that we have need of to operate in life that God placed there to be fulfilled by him. And when we step outside of that to try to fill those needs, that's called flesh. The end result thereof is sin. And the sin then gives birth to death, we find out in the book of James. And so, 
in verse number, when he talks about this idea of him leaving not many days since, it kind of reminds me of uh, after he got the inheritance, it reminds me of premeditated sin. Who's ever heard a sermon on premeditated sin? You ever heard one of those before? Oh, man, don't you commit a premeditated sin. Man, don't sit around and think about it, then do it, because that is even worse. Uh, and the, the consequences relationally could be. You know, it's funny, I've never met anybody that believed that premeditated sin caused you to lose your salvation that ever thought any of their sins were premeditated. <laughs> you know, they always did theirs on accident, <laughs> you know. The fact of the matter is this, is we can say that we sin at times on accident, but we really don't. You know, we're not these mindless robots that just like slip in a puddle of sin one day and fall down like, oh, it's all over me. How'd this happen? No, we, we make choices. We know what we're doing. We're not, we're not stupid out in left field somewhere mentally. We know the decisions that we're making. We may not know of all the outcomes of them, but we know them. This guy premeditated, he, he planned it. He sat around for a couple of days and said, after I get the money, I'm packing up and I'm gone. Do you think the father knew that? If you, I, I, like I said, I, I'm like still newbie at the father game, but some of you have kids that are old enough to where you've sat back and you watched them. You knew what was going on. You're like, oh, yeah, I see what you're thinking. I know what's going on. Yeah, I got, even mom's shaking her head. You remember that. She's got you figured out, son. <laughs> but you can see it. You know, you see it coming. This, the father wasn't dumb. He knew what was about to happen here. He's lived with this guy. He knew what his personality was like. He knew how he thought. He knew what he was going to do when he got that money, and he gave it to him anyway. Now, it's not saying that he okayed it. It's just saying this, is that the Father is gracious regardless of how good or bad you behave. That's what this story is teaching us. We're the ones that lose out on the benefit of the grace when we try to operate outside of who the Father is. Verse 13, he was in a place of waste. In verse 14, he was a place of want, and all this rhymes, so it's biblical. In verse 15, he experienced filthiness for the first time in his life. True filth. True filth. In verse 15, as he's feeding unclean animals the food that they eat. Now, when I was growing up, I have an uncle, and this is his name, which when I'm an uncle and I need some of the people in here that, are my, my, that make me uncles to give me a cool nickname like this, his nickname was Uncle Hoss. That is a good uncle name, all right? Uncle Hoss lived out in Wilmer near Tanner Williams out in that area, and he had pigs when I was a kid. And he would go to the Sunbeam factory on I-65 Service Road when it was still out there, and he would get all their old bread, bring it back, and he would just throw it in this one side of the barn, and that's what these pigs ate. And let me tell you something. A six-foot-high stack of moldy, rotten bread does not smell like a good air freshener for your car, right? It is, and I would go over there sometimes, and I would, I, I liked it when I was, when you're, when you're a boy that age, you're like, I mean, Buddy would love it. I mean, he'd be all over this. I mean, he shoved pigs, or they're like jumping over each other. You're shoveling in there, and it is a filthy, filthy job. At least that one was. I don't know if that's pretty much how feeding pigs goes, but that's my experience with it. And I never at one time looked at that giant pile of half-rotten bread and thought to myself, now that would make a good cheeseburger. You know, I never thought that at all. It reeked. But this guy was in such a place. Now, get this. He'd allow himself to get in such a place that he was willing to do something that he never would have done before. All right? But it was in this place. We don't know how long he was there. In verse 17, we find that it uses this phrase. It says, but when he came to himself, when it finally hit him between the eyes hard enough, not God, by the way. Now, do you see the father doing any of this to the son? And that's why it gets me. I, I used to hear people say, well, I would go to church, but the ceiling probably cave in on me. I'm like, look, man, I always wanted to say, whatever you got going on is not bigger than what Jesus did on the cross, all right? So first off, he's not going to hammer you in the head with a, with a rock uh, because you got addicted to drugs. That's not, you know, that's not his MO. That's not what he's thinking. Uh, he's not looking to make your tires go flat in order to teach you a lesson. I mean, you hear stuff like this at church all the time. When I was growing up, heard it all the time. You know, hey, don't sin. The chastening hand of God was more like the baseball bat of, uh, you know, Joe Pesci in the movie Casino. That's what it was like. You know, you made me put your head in a vice for this. That's what it feels like sometimes with the way that the religious world describes how God interacts with you. 
you know. The father's not doing any of this. The father is right where he was at the whole time. Matter of fact, we find out that more than likely on a regular basis, the father was constantly looking for this guy to come back. So he gets his reality check and he remembers. Now, what's so interesting about this is the, this, even this son knew something about God that a lot of people miss. He wasn't afraid to go back home, was he? He was more than willing to go back home. But he also understood, he thought to himself, because of the social norms, I can't go back as a son. I'll go back as a servant. And he thought it was a pretty good idea. He even practiced this whole little speech. It's a really good speech, you know. Just imagine one of your kids coming up to you and giving you this speech. You'd be like, whoa, 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 where did this come from, you know? So he goes back and he, in verse number, let's jump over to uh, verse number 19, well, verse number 20. So you know the speech, I'll arise, go to my father and say, I'm no worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants. Give me a little bread. I'll sleep with the servants out back. Don't worry about me. I won't sleep in the main house. In verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father, and when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and read and fell on his neck and kissed him. See, this is not about how bad the son was. It's about how gracious the father is. The father ran out and met him. He didn't even get back on the property, really. And the father was already out there. And then he goes into his speech, and what a good speech it was. You know, verse 21, he starts in, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like the father didn't even hear it. It's like he had his hearing aids turned off or something. I don't know what's going on. Verse 22, he just ignores the whole thing. He doesn't say, I accept your apology. He doesn't, he own, now get this, he doesn't reassure him by his words. He reassures him by his actions towards him. He reassured him before the speech when he ran out to him. He reassures him again when he says, go get the good robe. Go get the Armani robe, the one that I only wear on that special occasion and wrap it around this kid. Go get the ring, all right? And when it's, it's not just this, and understand this if we can, or think of it this way, I should say it like that, is that this ring wasn't just like some generic ring he picked up at Walmart that looked nice. I mean, this was a ring that was associated with the family, You see what I mean? So when the son wore that ring, he was identifying with the family. Can you imagine what... Now, we all all have more than likely one of those neighbors, all right? One of those neighbors that knows everything about you, all right? They watch you. They know what time you go to work, what time you get home. They know all kinds of stuff about you, all right? There's one of those neighbors that are just watching everything. I think I might be that neighbor on my street now that I think about it. (laughs) Kind of scary. But could you imagine what the neighbors thought when they got word real quick, hey, that one came home. And here's the dad giving away the good clothes, the good, the good jewelry, the good cow, you know. He's giving everything good. And there is a, as we would say in the south in the olden days, there was a hoedown going on at the main house. All right, everybody was there. Everybody was celebrating except for that one guy. All right, the one guy. He's out in the field. He's doing what he was supposed to do. He was, I don't know what he was, plowing corn. I don't know. What do you plow corn, shuck corn, pick corn? I don't know. He's out there doing it. I'm sure it has something to do with corn. It has to be. It's in my head as corn. Just like the fruit that Eve ate was an apple to you, even though we know it probably wasn't an apple. But anyways, it was a what? It was a peach. (laughs) Leave it to Doug to be obstinate. (laughs) I would expect nothing less, by the way. Okay. In verse number 27, uh, the brother says, he goes, uh, he asks what's going on up there. In verse 27, the servant responds and says, he said to him, your brother has come, and because he was received safe and sound, your dad's killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. He said, I ain't going in there with that chump. He ran off. I stayed here. Not only did I do my job, I did his job. Now, is that true? Yeah. Were there consequences to the son leaving the family? Yes, there was. The father wasn't concerned about the consequences. He was concerned about the son. The same thing is, about, is true about you and I. We're the ones that are consumed with the consequences and what they say about us. The father's consumed about who you are and what he says about you. We're the ones. I'm the one that lets the consequences define me. 
The Father is not the one that defines you by your consequences. And we all live with some of them here and there to whatever extent they may be. Some of them aren't very deep, but here's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter how big or small your consequences are. They're your consequence no matter what. It's easy for us to look at someone else's situation and say, well, heck, I wish I had that one. But if you had that one, it would be just as big of a deal to you. The most difficult thing you're dealing with is the thing you're dealing with right now, all right? Because it's probably the most difficult thing you've probably encountered as of right now in many cases. So anyways, I don't want to go too far down that road. Now, what gets me about verse number 28 is not the snottiness of the brother, but what really gets my attention is the end of verse number 28. It says, therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. If anybody deserved to get the dad lecture in this story up to this point, it was this guy. I mean, who does he think he is? Well, he's going to tell us who he thinks he is here in just a minute. I think it's very interesting that the father goes out to him. You know who else the father went out to? The first brother, the first son. He ran out to him, and he goes out to the second brother as well. What is this telling us about the father? The father is in constant pursuit of those that are tangled up in what we call gross sin, and he's in constant pursuit of the ones that are tangled up in their religious sins. He's always in pursuit. He's always going after. He's always coming out of his place, going to a place that he was never intended to be there as the father anyway. He's always stepping across, as we say in politics, across the aisle, isn't he? He's always going to where you are. And that's what chaps my hide about religion, is that it's constantly, religion tells you that you've got to go get to where God's at. You've got to make the sacrifice. You've got to make the prayers longer. You have to memorize more of the verses. And it takes all those very good things and it just completely just delegitimizes them to the point to where you're using them for point purposes that they weren't even there for. Prayer is not for you to get closer to God. It's for you to show how close you already are to God. You don't read your Bible in order to figure things out or in order to get closer and get your head full of knowledge. You read the Word of God so you can relate to Him based on what's true. That's it. You know, it's not a contest. If it is, I'm like in the back of the pack. This, from the rehearsed... Listen, I don't want to get too... Let's keep going. i got to keep going. I gotta, I've really got to hurry. Mike's up there glaring at me. <laughs> he is. I see that. I see that hand. <laughs> let's finish it up here. Uh, he says uh, in verse number 29, so the son answers and says to the father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. Yeah, and that's what every dad wants. That's what I want. You know, I just want my kids to come home and just do whatever I want them to do. Go cut the, you know, I make jokes sometimes like I have two dishwashers, but I really don't. I don't have my kids. I didn't have kids just to have somebody to serve me. Side note, this is why I kind of, and sometimes I'm sure I'm going to be nitpicky about this, but you'll forgive me, I'm sure. That's why I don't like the phrase, you know, how this whole idea of God using people. I don't like that. You know, if I were to, you know, go up to one of you and say, hey, I'd like to use you for a little while. As long as you do everything I want you to do, I'm going to use you. (laughs) If another human tried to use us, we'd be like, here, let me uh, escort you to the exit. You know, you can leave now. God doesn't use people. But see, this son thought that he did. He thought that his father had him to serve him. And completely, and really at the end of the day, both of these guys have the same mentality. What did the first son say he'd come back and ask to be? A servant. What did the second son think he was? A servant. Neither one of them thought they were sons. They completely missed the point of the father. They were looking past who he was totally. He said, I've served you and I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. Now, I have a hard time believing that, but okay, we'll go with it. (laughs) We'll just let him have his moment, okay? And he says, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours come, whom devoured your livelihood with harlots. Now, he didn't know that he did that. 
He just thought of the worst possible thing and pinned it on his brother. He says, you've killed the fatted calf for him. You know what I call this right here? I call this the low standards of religion. This is what it is. You know what? What was the first complaint the older son had? You never thrown me a goat barbecue with my buddies. Clearly, that's all you wanted was a goat barbecue. That's what you were aiming at by all this. Is for dad to come home and say, "Go, son, just go out there and just pick you any old goat you want, son. We'll barbecue that sucker up, bring your buddies over, we'll have a good time. You know, that, that's really, that's really what he wanted, a goat barbecue with his buddies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, Doug, don't distract me, I'm low on time right now. <laughs> so what does he do? What does religion do? Religion takes what God wants from you and it lowers it down into the dirt. God wants you to be a servant. God just wants you to shut up and do. God wants you to just obey him and that's it. You know, just shut up and do what you're told. Now, are there times where we needed to shut up and do what we're told? Yeah, there's times. You know, if you're running out into the street and get hit by a truck and God says, stop, you better stop, all right? That's just, he doesn't need to give you a 17-point dissertation on why you shouldn't stick your head under the truck of a Mack, uh, head under the tire of a Mack truck. You should just understand to stop. But in this section here, what we see is, is we see this son wanting something so much lower than what the father had intended for him. Because what does the father say to him? He says in verse number 30, or verse number 31, he said to him, Son, you are always with me. Number one, that is the most important thing. That is something that the younger son couldn't have said at that point. You're always with me. You're right here. I am what you, ha- what you need most. Everything about me provides everything for, about who you are and what you have. Everything. We see what it's like when the other brother stepped outside of that to try to make provision, don't we? He was eating pig food. This guy sat at the father's table every night, and he was worried about a goat with his buddies. And the father goes on and he tells him this. He says, and all that I have is yours. You know what the interesting thing is? Is the younger son understood more about the father and his provision than the older son did. Because what did the younger son say? He'd say, if I just went back to where dad was, I'm going to be taken care of. The older son lived right in the middle of it. Didn't even see it. That's what religion does to you. It, it blinds you to what the father's really like. It gives you a misconstrued idea about the motive of God. And it makes the heart of the father into the, the hand of a master, you know, that's just simply looking to make sure everything goes right so he looks good at the end. Uh, that's what we call a megalomaniac. That's not a God. That's not the God of the Bible anyway. God is glorified the most when we live in everything that he says that we are. That's when he's glorified the most. When you are simply a son and simply a daughter. When we realize that the enemy has come along and said, pleasure gives you meaning, and if pleasure doesn't work, here, try religion. That'll give you meaning. He does the same thing for salvation. The enemy comes along and says, if you just work your hardest, if you just turn over a new leaf, if you just do the best that you can, if you just make some changes, and then God's going to look at you and say, you know what, you tried really hard, let's come on in heaven. And of course, St. Peter is at the gate of heaven for some reason via all the jokes I've ever heard about it. And once you get past St. Peter at the gate of heaven, then you can live out somewhere on the outskirts and like the slum of heaven because you just didn't make it up there as quickly and as good as the pastor did, you know. That's religion for you. You get what you pay for. Christianity is as you get what Christ paid for. That's the difference. And that's what this father's demonstrating for us. That the sons got what he paid for. They didn't get what they paid for. You see, God is the father that some of us never knew we had. That's just the truth of the matter. He's the father that some of us never knew that we had. Uh, If you've never been born again, God, you've got in you the desire. Well, let me put it this way. In the the real world, and uh, Lauren and Daniel's had a baby. You guys know that. I think Daniel knows that too. (laughs) 
But you really, if you stop and you think about it, and I've heard this, I heard this on a documentary about fatherhood, and it really struck me. It's, uh, he makes the, the assertion that a father is the first person that really has to choose to accept you in this world. And to an extent, I think that's true. The mother has a connection with the child for the child that's even here. You know, I don't know what that's like. Thank God. I, I will <laughs> totally forego that. Even if I had the choice, I would choose not to do it, all right? So I'm going to forego that. I'm just going to say you'll have to explain it to me later, ladies, all right? But I know enough to know that a mother has a special connection for the child before they even see that child. I know as a father, you have an idea of what you want that connection to be like, but you have to wait until you actually see that child. You don't have that. You don't really, you don't, anyways, I don't want to get into all that. You, when, I can remember when all my children were born, I can remember at that moment saying, oh my gosh, this thing is actually real, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and, and you're, and you, you see it there. There was, you know, and you're, you're holding this baby and suddenly things shift. I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm speaking for myself. It's not that you didn't love them and want them before. But in that moment, you choose to take that child and you're like, this is my child. You see, lost people have that desire for somebody to look at them and say, that person's mine. And that's what the gospel provides for the unsaved person. That doesn't change after you're saved. It's still the same. Religion wants to swoop in and say, well, now that you're saved, here's 22 things for you to do to be a better Christian. You know, and we go down the list and we're checking them off and we get to number 15 and we're like, holy smokes, what did I sign up for? If you're here today and you've never been born again, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. You can step away from your church, step away from what your grandmother told you, from what your father may have told you, from what you learned in kindergarten, from what you read in a book or on a website or looked at on YouTube and come to Christ and Christ alone. Because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And for those of us as believers, you know what Jesus said? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes in the Father but by me. Let's pray, okay? Uh, Father, thank you um, that you, you reveal yourself to us. You do so in bits and pieces. Uh, you come to us in our failures, whether they be the ones that are just kind of hard to look at and difficult to process, but you come to us in our religious failures that uh, people might pat us on the back for, but nonetheless are failures because there are attempts uh, to gain something from you rather than just accepting what you've already done for us. And so we're thankful for um, who you are. We're thankful that you operate outside the norm, uh, that you come from where you are to where we are that you run out to us that, and you meet us on the way back from the pig, pig, tri, the pig trough and from the pigsty and that you come out of the house and you plead with us to say, come in. There's no reason for you to be out here when you can be in with the rest. And so we're thankful for your, um, your grace that comes after us. And uh, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.